We live in a modern, hyper-connected world where everything is becoming smart and connected. Curious about what lies ahead and how this will impact your daily life? I'm Brett Jordan, and this is Smarter Everything, a podcast on the future of connectivity, powered by Afero. The need for cybersecurity expertise and talent is growing at a rate beyond our ability to keep up. While some organizations, banks, enterprises, and parts of government have been able to invest significantly in their various cybersecurity programs and departments, there are some that are struggling to even cover the basics or even hire a single dedicated security individual. For state, local, tribal, and territorial organizations of the United States, this is where the Center for Internet Security, or CIS, can help out. While CIS does many things and they help many organizations, they are probably most famous for their prescriptive guidance of critical controls and other day-to-day recommendations for cybersecurity, but they actually do so much more. Recently, CIS produced some guidance for IoT communication protocols to help vendors design and build better security into their programs from the very beginning. This effort is often referred to as shift-left, meaning shift the burden of security to the vendors because end organizations simply cannot hire enough talent, and adding more bolt-on security after the fact is really not helping at all. Today, I will be talking with Kathleen Moriarty, the Chief Technology Officer at CIS, and one of her analysts, Ben Carter. Kathleen is a world-renowned security expert and a good friend. We'll be talking about her role at CIS, what CIS does, and a little bit about their recent publication for IoT Protocols. Here is my conversation with Kathleen and Ben. Kathleen, it is really great to see you again. It's been a long time. It's fun for you and Ben to be on Smarter Everything today. Last time we spoke, I think it was at RSA, but how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. It's a pleasure to see you as well, Brett. We always have a great conversation, and so I'm really looking forward to being on the show today and chatting with you and catching up a bit. Yeah. And Ben, do you want to take a minute and introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Ben Carter. I'm the IoT specialist in the office of the CTO at the Center for Internet Security. Great. And then Kathleen, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm the Chief Technology Officer at the Center for Internet Security. As Brett mentioned, we go way back. So I had a stint as the IETF, Internet Engineering Task Force Security Area Director for four years. So two terms, worked at Dell and have been a former CISO three times. So I've been around for a while and really enjoy this work. That is fantastic. I know we spent a lot of time together in the IETF and a lot of interesting conversations. Maybe we can come back to that a little bit later. What is CIS? Sure. Center for Internet Security is a nonprofit, and we have two main areas, the security best practices, and many people might be familiar with those, the CIS benchmarks and the CIS controls are some of the main products out of that organization really aimed towards very prescriptive guidance that practitioners can follow and in sometimes even buy products already meeting that prescriptive guidance. It's formed by expert consensus, which is nice and provides assurance that you're beginning with a good product. 
And if you download it for your organization to implement, it's free. The other part of our organization is our operational security services. And that team runs the multi-state information sharing and analysis center and the election infrastructure information sharing and analysis center. That means we support the state, local, tribal, and territorial organizations of the United States, helping them with security services, where we're actually running some of them or running them through partners. And a number of those are free or at a steep discount to make it possible for them to run their organizations and be secure. They also help in the case of any type of incident that might occur and can aid with their first response and guiding these organizations who often don't have enough resources through those very difficult times. What brought you to CIS? About three years ago, let's see, that was 2020. And I had finished up as an IETF area director about two years before that. And when I stepped down, I realized, wait a minute, I observed so much reading the 400 pages every other week for four years on all the standards published across the internet, a few things came to mind. I've balanced myself back out, no longer just security, because that provided a nice, strong, balanced base. And there was also some observations, because I began in 2014, a year after the Snowden revelations, and there was a really big change in the IETF for strong encryption and a push for it to be ubiquitous. And I had done some work and study in that area with RFC 8404 with Al Morton. And we learned quite a bit from all the operators in terms of how they might be impacted. It wasn't meant to solve any problems, but really observe what's going to be the impact so that we can figure out how we address that impact and how we can take advantage of this change in time and allow people to read what the problem sets were so that other people can gain ideas and insights into how they might fix problems. I thought about it, and then I wrote a book. How do we transform information security? And that's what the title is, Transforming Information Security, with some insights that so much is about to change, and we are in the middle of that change now. I know, Brett, I see you posting things frequently that acknowledge we're moving towards a reduction in middle boxes, and we need to prepare for what that means. But as we make these pretty dramatic changes, we have an opportunity to alter the architectural patterns for management so that we are not putting a burden on the staff anymore of the distributed organizations. More can be done by the center organization so that we don't have the current 700,000 person deficit in the United States. And that doesn't include the organizations who have no resources to hire. Yeah, that's really fantastic. And I think it's something you and I've talked about a lot over the years, but you know, this transformative nature that we're going to, middle boxes are gonna become pretty much irrelevant here pretty quickly especially with TLS 1.3, with Doe, with Encrypted Client Hello. It's going to be really hard for people to look at solving the problem the way they've been doing it. But I'd like to come back to something you were saying, You know, two things. One of the things I've really appreciated from CIS or the Center for Internet Security is this very strong prescriptive guidance that you give. I think too often in security, we are 
very high level or we do things at the 90,000 foot level and say, okay, well, you should have these basic structures in or, you know, this framework, but it doesn't really help organizations get off the ground and help them actually do something. And so until they get far enough along, that higher level content really just doesn't mean anything to them. And so I really love what you guys do there. And I think it's a huge value to the industry. And then you also talked about the MSI SAC, and I've talked a little bit about this before on this podcast, about the FSI SAC, the Financial Services Information Sharing and Analysis Center. But an ISAC, I could explain it from a threat intelligence side because I've worked in that for so long, but maybe you want to take a second, just explain from your side what an ISAC is, and then we can maybe get into your book. The federal government, I believe under DHS, established about 20 information sharing and analysis centers decades ago. And each one of them is a little bit different. The idea is that you have a community that's similar and they have similar problems. And so there are exchanges or services that might benefit that community by pooling resources. The MSISAC is the largest ISAC and it is federally funded because it's for the state, local, tribal, and territorial organizations. And as such, you know, we have a large team that offers support. We do things like provide information sharing data to the organizations where our team actively pulls together over 200 sources of data for threat intelligence, integrates it, normalizes it, and then provides that in feeds to customers. But that really doesn't go far enough. Most organizations do not have the capacity to integrate those feeds of data into their infrastructure themselves. What's really valuable is that the team then puts it into the services we offer and manage for these entities. And that's where we see the real impact. Yeah. And for people that are listening, you know, the threat intelligence piece, maybe if I can boil it down or distill it down to the breadcrumbs that Hansel and Gretel would leave along the path. You think about if a threat actor is attacking a system, they're coming from an IP address, or they're using a specific piece of malware, that malware may have a hash, it may have certain properties or certain pieces of behaviors that it will run when it infects the machine. And so what the ISACs do is they gather that information, they put it into a structured way, they normalize it, and then they share that out. So other people don't have to wait until they've been compromised to see that information, they can start blocking those attacks before they hit them. And so that's one of the real cool things about ISACs. And there's also an ISAO, but it basically is sharing this threat intelligence. And so at the simplest layer, you can think about it as the IP addresses that threat actors are using for their infrastructure. Now, we often want to go above that and get into what we call the TTPs or the techniques, tactics, and procedures. MITRE has done some work on this with their attack framework. And then there's the indicators of behavior that are coming out of John Hopkins APL. But all of these things are about trying to identify threat and be able to block it before it hits everybody. Yes. And so we also have a cyber threat intelligence team that does similar work and pushes out reports to the closed community. Yeah. The work that the Center for Internet Security is doing is just really valuable for so much of the infrastructure that we rely on as citizens day to day. So Ben, what have you been doing at CIS? So as the IoT specialist, I was initially brought in as an intern to kind of get the ball rolling with our embedded security IoT guidance. 
It's an IoT guidance that is structured to really help vendors built in security during their design and research phase. So when those devices, whether it be just your smart thermostats and some of those devices that we use pretty regularly in our everyday lives, all the way from those to something as small as a little sensor, we really try to build it out in a way for those vendors to really understand the different options in terms of security that they have. We looked at the most commonly used protocols for IoT devices, broke them out by their stacks. It certainly gets pretty technical, but we really wanted to allow a vendor to understand all of the various options that they have so that security can be built onto that device rather than it being pushed out and not necessarily secure during the manufacturing process. I think that's important because, you know, the protocol or the way these devices talk is really important to get right. And there's lots of different options out there. And there's been a lot of protocols created over the years, especially for the hyper-connected, smart and connected IoT space. Not all of them are as good as others. And they have very specific use cases. What was your motivations you know, for publishing? Because once again, this is a pretty prescriptive guidance. What was driving this? How do we put more in the hands of the vendor? How do we shift left more and enable the vendor to provide security, ideally by design and by default, but also that it can be managed securely over time? And so by providing this prescriptive guidance, if we enable them, then ultimately the end user will have less to do, less to manage. And we've effectively shifted left. And ideally, we've also cut down the demand of resources that would be distributed globally, right? So if you don't need some portion of an FTE for a new function, that's a win, especially when you multiply it by millions of organizations. Well, and the fact that so many organizations try to reinvent the wheel every time they deploy their infrastructure versus having a set of prescriptive guidance of saying, okay, this is what you should do. Right. And some of the leaders at CIS, and I mean board of directors and CEO, said, hey, what could we do in the IoT space? What would be meaningful to industry? And this was before there was a call in an executive order for the labeling for NIST. And they said, take a look at the Singapore labeling. So we did. Uh, We don't want to get into labeling, but there seems to be a gap in making decisions on how to deploy security. So before you could label, shouldn't we take this step first and provide this consolidated research so that you could compare protocol stacks and could make a good decision from the beginning as opposed to saying, hey, we have a developer who's good at MQTT. Let's do that. But now they can compare What does that full stack look like? What does it look like on the wire? What are the resource constraints if we compare it to something like co-op and then we add security on top and then we can make better decisions? Yeah, getting the security right, especially on the privacy side, is really hard. You know, and even on constrained devices, it's really hard to do and really hard to get right. So Ben, back to a question for you. How did you get started in IoT? Like, where did this come from? (laughs) It's certainly not a normal route to get into technology. I'll take you back a bit. I started my professional career actually in client-facing sales, selling office supplies up in Manhattan. 
nothing to do with technology and certainly nothing to do with cyber. So decided to make a change and I ended up actually in Georgetown's Applied Intelligence Master's program. And through that, really found a liking to counterterrorism work. And as that kind of progressed, I took a liking to cyber. As that progressed, next thing I know, I'm in Kathleen's cyber threat intelligence course, learning about those TTPs specific to various threat actors across the world. And from that, she presented the opportunity to be brought in as an intern doing exactly what this document is structured to do. And we kind of hit the ground running from that phase as an intern. And then that progressed into now a full-time position, which I'm in my second year, I believe, full-time with CIS. And yeah, it was not a normal route to get into IoT, but I'm very thankful for it. Well, you're really lucky to work with Kathleen. She's very, very smart and knows a lot about this space. So it's you're going to learn a lot. Thank you. And he will do more cyber threat intelligence work. <laughs> <laughs> That will not be lost. <laughs> and the threat intelligence piece is really important, and there's a lot of uses for it, especially as we start to do this at scale and we start to operationalize and do some automation around this. So one more question for you, Ben. So now that you've been in the space, you're working with Kathleen, you're doing this stuff at CIS, spending a lot of time and energy on the IoT space, what are some of the biggest challenges and risks that you see for this smart and connected infrastructure? A concern I have, and frankly, is part of the reason why we had this document published, was how constrained these devices actually are. Compare a cell phone or an iPhone, a smartphone, to a smart light bulb. The constraints put on that light bulb are tenfold to what they are for that smartphone. You can really embed security on those larger IoT devices, but as you progressively get smaller and to devices that really can only perform a few tasks and might just be a sensor sending data to a system, it's much harder to properly embed security on those systems. So personally, I think sometimes during the manufacturing phase or the design phase, security is just kind of left out. They're making it a functional product and it's going to do its job, but then the security aspect is getting put on to the end user. So as Kathleen mentioned, we are working to have that shift left. So these security aspects of these devices is put into the hands of the vendor. But at the same time, the end user is also putting these devices into systems that are quite vulnerable and are actually hot targets for larger cyber attacks. We're seeing IoT devices be put into water treatment plants where if an attacker is successful, can really increase chlorine levels and make that water deadly. We're now seeing these systems that weren't typically connected wirelessly or connected via the internet or Wi-Fi be connected. And that's raising a concern for risks and also supply chain attacks where if one system is breached, it's going to have a ripple effect and cause much more destruction than just the leak of some data. Yeah, so I think for the listeners, you know, when we talk about constrained devices like a light bulb, they don't have enough CPU processing power or enough memory to run like a full stack. In some cases, they can, but it depends on some design decisions that were done really early with the manufacturer. But then when you get down to sensors like a window sensor or a door sensor or even like a temperature sensor or something like that, they often run on a battery. 
and a battery doesn't have a lot. You don't want to be changing those every month or every quarter. And so running a full TLS stack on those devices is very expensive from a power standpoint. And so you tend to need to figure out ways to optimize for the end user, the consumer, so they're not having to go around their house and put a new coin battery in all of their sensors every three months. You want these to last for a year or two years. And so you have to make some design decisions. And so building the security is challenging. And I think Kathleen, you and I have seen over the years that so many vendors try to bolt security on and as an afterthought, and even the White House's new frameworks, you know, are coming out and saying, well, this doesn't work. And I'm like, well, Kathleen and I have been talking about this for probably 10 years. Like, this doesn't work. This 1990s model of security doesn't work. So, Kathleen, how do you see these devices moving into the enterprise or critical infrastructure? And what risks and problems do you see? We are setting a line in the sand with this document. It may only impact newer infrastructure or infrastructure where upgrades are possible. But if the line is not drawn, we're never going to start. And so is this perfect? No. But maybe in 20 years when that legacy equipment is gone, we will have been in a better place because this guidance was available. We'd like to see it used for organizations who are making design decisions so they might be able to see, well, MQTT is smaller per packet if I choose that without encryption, but my choice for it is TLS. So depending on my level of constraint, maybe co-app that is, I think, double in size, but we're talking really tiny, and I add ad hoc, a new almost standard. I think it's in the final stages of being standardized. I can send much smaller packets on the wire and they can be encrypted. Or I could use something like OS Core and have true end-to-end encryption with object encryption and still have a small packet on the wire with protocols designed for constrained devices. But without this guidance, it would take an organization, let's say at least three months, if they focused in on the protocols appropriate for their level of the stack to get to the types of decisions they can now make in an hour or two. Additionally, the documents, not just CIS, as I mentioned previously, we reach out to experts in the field. And for this document, we had such a nice range of experts involved in the early phases, some generalists who said, wait, why aren't you covering this? Why aren't you covering this? So the document got expanded. And then some very focused experts who wrote some of the protocols that are represented in the document and have broad purview over some of the other ones. And they helped to sharpen the document. And then additional sets of experts who helped in the editing process, as well as to make sure of technical correctness. The goal is save time. And then another potential objective, now that NIST has this mandate to work on labeling, let's say an organization wants to improve their security label. They might go to our document as a resource to figure out how they could improve the security rating of their device from the document that consolidates quite a bit of research. The document you're talking about from NIST is the NIST IR8425 document. So the NIST one is really high level, but the document that you've worked on really can help organizations simply because sometimes it's hard to even know what's possible 
and know about all the different protocols that could exist or that do exist and that could be used inside of a product. And for the listeners, Kathleen mentioned, you know, that it might be like a 10-year event horizon for some of these things. But you need to understand that in some parts of critical infrastructure, it's not like you have a computer or you have your MacBook Pro that's running a power plant. There's going to be equipment that's soldered in to some sort of logic board. And you just can't go and rip that out and do an upgrade like you would in your home for some other, you know, piece of device. So... As these IoT devices or these smart and connected devices work their way into critical infrastructure, it's going to be important that we get all of these things right. And one of the core things is getting the protocols right. So what are you worried about, though? Like as we transition into this metro level, grid level systems and we get all of these IoT devices deployed everywhere, you know, as it has that Apple effect and it starts infiltrating the enterprise, because quite honestly, some of the IoT devices are really good and they're much cheaper than some of the traditional commercial versions. What are you worried about? I'm worried about the scale of management over time. You know, we hear about built-in by design and by default, and CISA has been talking about that quite a bit. But if you go back to the book I wrote, one of the key things called out throughout the architecture discussions is architectural patterns that scale really focused on better ways to manage networks and devices. We are being crushed under this expectation that management and configuration is distributed to every single organization. It's not sustainable. And every time the new shiny thing that's added that is essential for your network security, it comes along with this expectation that you hire somebody to manage this new shiny thing and that it's so important. And that just doesn't scale. So as Ben mentioned, I also teach at Georgetown. I teach two courses, security architecture and design and cyber threat intelligence. There's some amount we can do by training people, but we absolutely cannot fill the gap by this ever-expanding need that we cannot catch up on. And so we do have to architect with patterns that scale so that the vendors are not just building security in by design and by default, but they are putting in patterns for management that scale over time that enable an organization with very slim resources. And this was one of the reasons... I joined CIS is because they care about the organization with very few resources, the undersourced. And I thought, wow, what a great fit to get to go to an organization where a lot of people have the same passion area and maybe we can make an impact together. So shifting gears back to some IoT horizon scanning, something I like to ask all of my guests, where do you see the IoT market going and what are you excited about? We talk a lot about the security and the risk and the problems, but what are you actually excited about and where do you see it over a 12 to 24 month horizon? With the state and city level governments, we are seeing quite a demand for more information on smart city development and also to support them in their efforts for smart city development. We will see an increase in the use of IoT. We already are, but more of it will be tied together for your energy resources, for countless functions. We need to do this securely. And what I'm excited about is that it is possible to do it more securely. And if you look at several other countries, when they do begin this type of effort, They build security in from the beginning, and they have had more success with that pattern. We can do it too. 
So as I look to the future, I am looking for a future where we are more organized. We do plan. We do consider security from the beginning. And if there are places where CIS can help, where we convene experts and develop guidance, we would love to know what would have the biggest impact toward those goals of having more secure smart cities and really enabling the next you know, 10 to 20 years. Ben, what are you excited about in this IoT space? What gets you excited about the future? One, I think just how manageable a lot of these devices will become. We're seeing new protocols come out that promote interoperability. So a city or state looking to implement some of these smart city IoT devices, one, they can work more seamlessly together, but they're also at the same time more manageable. I know if you look at your own little home ecosystem, there's ways to control light bulbs, thermostats, even I think some coffee machines now you can turn on and turn off from your phone. But if we grow that at scale, and as these devices roll out that allow for train stations, I know Germany actually has a pretty big IoT implementation with their train stations using actually MQTT. And it just allows for more autonomous communication from the train to the station to the boards letting passengers know what stops are coming up and their ETAs. It's just going to allow for a more hopefully smooth transition into a much more autonomous lifestyle that is simpler to live, but also from a security standpoint, much simpler to manage as well. One follow-up question for you, Kathleen. I know your book is amazing and you've done so much work for the industry. You've spent a ton of time in international standards. Do you have any comments on any standards that are really influential at this point? Attestation from a root of trust is going to change security so fundamentally in a few years. You know, I hope it's only two or three years out. It's probably a little bit more. We are seeing some areas where it's had great impact. So I'll describe one of them so that people understand how they're using this and they don't even know they're using it. Every time you boot a system, whether that be a server, storage system, or a laptop, your system is doing checks to make sure the firmware is as expected, the BIOS is as expected, and even that the components on the board match what is expected, no more, no less. If there is a discrepancy in a measurement or a configuration setting or one of those expectations, a process is reset until it's met or your system is locked. You know this is working if in Windows 10 and up that BitLocker prompts you and you can type in your password and it unlocks your system. On a Mac, you know it's working if you could use your fingerprint reader. And most people aren't aware that this process happens. Why do I love it so much? Why does it make me excited? Because I worked at Dell previously and EMC and RSA through all the mergers for 13 years. And I worked directly with each of the teams there who made this work on all of the Dell systems. The power of scale that it has is tremendous, right? You have five engineers or so on each of those teams who are part of making that work. And then millions of systems use that and we don't need every administrator to understand what's working. So that's what has me excited. It's going to take a few years. If you dig into the standards, it's a lot of work and you need some foundational security aspects to understand it. 
But it's important to understand things like how does PKI work? And then I'd even say it's important to understand things like the SCAP model and all of the inner workings of those protocols, because it's not that simple to assess the posture of a system. There are a lot of moving pieces and protocols that have to work together so that you can get a cohesive picture of a system. And SCAP is falling away, but the importance of it, and I still teach it in my course, is that it shows you the model of how you put together what is the hardware, what is the software, what are the vulnerabilities, what should the configuration look like, and then how do I pull the configuration to compare it against the expected values. And yes, it'll be the vendors that do most of the implementations for attestation, but my hope is this has a tremendous impact towards reducing the number of engineers needed. So Kathleen, I wanted to come back to another thing that we had talked about a few minutes ago in our conversation. Could you tell us a little bit more about your book and what its goals are and objectives and kind of why you wrote it in the first place? Great question, Brett. The book provides a pretty comprehensive overview of security architecture, and it is written at a high level so that a manager, somebody in an executive role would be able to read it and at least get through the critical points of what a board member should understand And it provides links and resources so that a practitioner who needs to go deeper can also go deeper. It seemed to be a pretty big gap, both the objective of the book to show what trends are happening in industry and how we could respond to really change and reshape where we are today to have security built in by design, by default, but managed securely over time with this pivotal change we're undergoing with encryption everywhere, right? So, And I think that's really important because it's got to be really hard for new people coming into this space or into this sphere to learn and understand all the pieces. I know when I started back in the early 1990s doing security and running very large networks, it was a lot simpler firewalls didn't exist back then. You know, we would configure all of the security as ACLs or on our BGP router as a, you know, an ingress egress point to the network and send mail or post fix. Like you would do all of the configurations and all of your spam filtering you did by hand. That's not simpler though. If you think about it, we just had our hands into everything and we also had access to the full stack. I know in my first position, Out of undergrad, I was able to do network security, networking, right? I understood multiple routing protocols, made configuration changes on at least 10 different types of routers to the point where the CLI, the command line interface, it didn't matter. I understood what was happening. We understood how the protocols worked. Now, today, people are siloed, so they get a very narrow view And they often don't get that low-level perspective of how things are working. And they're not told, go read the RFC. I would go read the RFC, in full disclosure, in the early days, on an elliptical because I found them so boring. (laughs) Which is very funny today after having been an IETF area director where I could read them really quickly. And we all start from someplace, and it's possible to start from that place where you need this introductory material to then get deeper. And that was one point of the book. Can I give you the introductory materials so that you can then go that step deeper and understand why you need to know how the inner workings of a protocol work? And then for the executive level, what should I be hearing 
from my teams to know that we're on a good track or where should I be pointing them? So this was meant as high-level guidance to really reset architecture, provide a baseline, but also an insight into how can we together make it better. And while I said I have architectural patterns that scale in it, they're not meant to be perfect in the book. And you don't want perfect because I would love for a slew of engineers to read this and say, oh, I could do it better than that. And then come up with even better architectural patterns that scale. I encourage everybody to read your book. So it's called Transforming Information Security by Kathleen Moriarty. And Kathleen is a good friend and she's been an area director in the IETF for a really long time. She really knows her stuff. So thank you again, Kathleen, for being on the show today. And thanks, Ben, for coming to the show. Thank you, Brett. It's our pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you, Brett. This was a great time. Thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of Smarter Everything. We really love feedback. So please consider taking a moment to send us a comment or a rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you have time and you like this episode, please consider subscribing. We'll see you next time for Smarter Everything.